Okay, so I gave you those sheets that you have now there in front of you. It's called uh, Marriage 2, which is Marriage as a Sacrament. I would just like to give it another title called The Mystery of Matrimony. Okay, so far from these conferences, you've seen so far that marriage as a natural institution is a contract, and that among baptized persons it is also a sacrament. And we can ask ourselves why. What is it that baptism does to, to, make, baptism, uh, to make marriage a sacrament? Is it sort of like a magic wand, right? And if it's, not a it's not a sacrament until someone is baptized. Some people have the notion that uh, the marriage sacrament is only different from an unbaptized persons, from marriage between unbaptized persons, by the fact that Christ sort of gave a special blessing to it, or they just attached special graces to help it achieve its end. That is not exactly true. And it's true there are extra graces attached to it because Christ instituted or reinstituted marriage or made it a sacrament. Right, but that's, if, they, if we just go from that point of view, where there's just a special grace added to it, that doesn't make matrimony a sacrament. It just gives it a special elevation. Right? The, the grace would not come from matrimony itself, but from something else, from certain, a, a certain blessing. And plus, if you had that notion of, of marriage just being, so to speak, a special blessing given by Christ, you don't really have anyone confecting a sacrament when they come together, but only something super added upon it by an external force, an external act. So what we have to do is to really understand the nature of the sacrament of matrimony, to see its elevation, and to see the characteristic that Christian matrimony has above matrimony between unbaptized persons. Okay, we have seen so far in the talking of the sacraments that the sacraments that impress a character, a character, like for instance, when a person is baptized, it enters a person into another state. In other words, this very character consecrates his soul for a certain work. It gives an imprint of, or a character on his soul, an impress on his soul, a divine mark that puts him for a different, that puts him to an elevated end. Now we can see in matrimony also, it does not have a, a sacramental character, but a certain state of life is, in, is entailed in matrimony. One in matrimony enters a different state of life, it enters a new supernatural state. And so it's not a new state in the sense of another consecration, but it's an elevation to another higher end, to a pursuit of a high and sacred objective. And so this entry into matrimony brings with it a sanctifying grace. See, so there by its very nature, matrimony must have the character that, so to speak, the, the specifics that matrimony gives to a couple already must give it a high position in the mystical body of Christ. There must be a special force that flows to them from the head of the, from the, head of the church. And this contract, this matrimonial contract, has for, itself, has for its very end a fruitfulness for grace. So what we're going to do is we're going to have to backtrack a little bit to really understand this. What is the character, if I can use that term, the character of matrimony? So what we're going to do is we're going to backtrack a little bit and we'll look at marriage just from a natural point of view, just from a very natural point of view. So apart from any divine ordination, marriage is really nothing more than a habitual union of man and wife right, for the propagation of the human race. This of its very nature is already an end above any other ends because you're talking about the, the propagation and the conservation of the human species. Right, so that very nature, when a couple comes together to contract themselves for that end, they cannot dispose of the means to that end uh, under their own power. Just by the very nature of the end of itself, by the natural end of procreating children, right, they cannot put different conditions to it. 
those conditions must come from the very nature of the end itself. Unlike other contracts, like for instance buying and selling, where the persons can, so to speak, bargain the terms, right? Because if you want to buy a house, you can ask for a lower price, and things like that. Right? But the very end of matrimony presupposes you cannot do anything about the means to that end. Just from the very elevated nature of the end itself, the conditions that flow from that end are, are cannot be changed, cannot be changed by the couple, cannot be altered by the couple. So they cannot, the power, the, the, the spouses do not have the power to lay down conditions for their marriage. And so therefore that's why we have the conditions of matrimony of unity and dis, indissolubility, because they are necessary to achieve that end, the end of the procreation of children. And now this, this, these means of procreation, these means of unity and indissolubility are not absolutely necessary in the sense that every contingency, every, every specific circumstance requires them. In the sense that under the old law, God could dispense from it, right, because it was not absolutely necessary to attain the end. Therefore, our divine ordinance could permit, could permit indissolubility, could, could, could permit divorce, or could dispense from the fact of only one wife. That's why you see in the Old Testament, God does have a dispensation for a certain time frame. Okay, but now, since this is not, not something absolutely flowing per se from something, so it, needs, it requires another super added thing, a divine ordinance, to lay down these conditions definitively. And that's what we call the positive divine law. And that's where we come to the divine law enters directly into matrimony. So even in view of the supernatural, not even in view of the supernatural, but in view of the natural end, matrimony already has a religious character. It is already a binding to God. So the couples do not only bind themselves to each other, but they also bind themselves to God. Because they, de they dedicate themselves precisely for the end of extending God's, God's kingdom over rational creatures. The very end is to produce more people right, who will adore God. And God is the creator of the souls of their children. So therefore, to make the marriage even fruitful, God has to directly intervene. Because only God can infuse the rational soul into the, into the fertilized egg. So only God can make that marriage union fruitful. And so the marriage union, by its very nature, even, even abstracted from supernatural grace, comes under the very special influence and uh, prerogatives of God. And so God, in directly intervening in this union of man and wife, is not merely just permitting them to dedicate themselves to this end, but also consecrates them right, to this end by his own will. And so this married couple not only enter the marriage union and the marriage rights and the use of the marriage rights, not only with his permission, but also in his very own name, by his own divine ordinance, when he says, go forth and multiply. That very, that very commission by God in Genesis right, is, a, is not only making matrimony something permitted by God, but something absolutely commanded, something under his very own authority, under his own name. And so therefore, when there is any question of marriage, God is already a direct witness to that. God is already a direct witness and a direct party interested in the matrimonial union. So as, that's what Genesis will say, in the Old Testament you'll say, what God has put together, let no man put asunder. Because God is a direct witness to that contract. And so just under these considerations alone, just in the very natural end of what matrimony is, you can already see that it's above any civil authority and above any power of man to dissolve or to alter.
So there's no such thing as a civil divorce. It's a complete nonsensical term. Because the civil power has no authority over marriage whatsoever. Because it's something instituted by God from the very beginning. Right? In the very end of it, the very end of marriage, the procreation of children is outside the scope of civil authority. Civil authority has an interest in it, of course, because it propagates society. But it cannot alter the conditions of the contract. It cannot dissolve the contract. And so from the very beginning, from the very nature of man, marriage has a, has a sacred religious character, much in a way like an oath would have a sacred or religious character. In fact, we take the word sacramentum, the very word sacramentum, in, in ancient Latin, or the ancient Latins, originally meant oath. The very word sacramentum means oath, in the sense that a person who takes an oath not only binds himself to that person, Right, as, as being a, a good witness, but he also binds himself to God so that any violation right, of the oath is also takes on a character of sacrilege, right, of being sacrilegious if one violates an oath. So the same way that marriage is a sacrament in the very fundamental sense of like an oath is sacred. It was to violate the marriage bond is to go directly against God because your God, a marriage union is taking place in the name of God. So therefore, to violate the matrimonial bond is already, just on the nature of things, right, already a violation against God, a certain sacrilege. And that is why the ancients, even the ancient Romans, right, who had nothing, not, who knew nothing about grace, right, treated divorce as one of the most heinous crimes in the world. In fact, there was no such thing as any divorce in the Roman Empire, at least recorded, before 40 BC. And shortly thereafter, the whole empire falls, the whole republic falls apart and becomes the empire. It's in the time of Augustus. Okay, so what we've talking about so far, we have not talked about the Christian sacrament whatsoever. We're just talking about the nature of the matrimonial bond from the very beginning of mankind. So what did uh, what did Christ do to this matrimonial bond? What did Christ do to marriage? Still not specifically speaking a Christian sacrament, what we're talking about now. Right? It has a religious and sacred character, but it's not really a sacrament because... Uh, this bond only receives a sacramental character right, when the members who enter into it are raised to a supernatural order. So when you have husband and wife, they have to be in the supernatural order for it to become a sacrament. And how does one enter the supernatural order? Well, first off, our parents, in the very beginning, were elevated to the supernatural order by the infusion and by being, by being them created in a state of grace. So paradise, they were joined in marriage as children of God right, because they possessed sanctifying grace. And it was not merely a religious union, but supernaturally holy. Their marriage, the marriage of Adam and Eve, was supernaturally holy. Because the end to which they were ordained, which was the propagation of the human race, was also elevated to such an extent right, that the children that they would have would be infused with sanctifying grace by its very nature. That's how elevated their marriage was in, in paradise. Because not only would they just produce children, but they would produce children of God. Children with sanctifying grace. And that would continue as so long as they were in the state of sanctifying grace. And you can also point out that this very union in paradise came with it an increase of sanctifying grace for each one of them. Not only were they created in grace, 
But once they were married, you can even have the opinion that that marriage gave them an increase of sanctifying grace. Not in the way the sacraments do, not ex opere operato, but ex opere operantis. And it's by the work of the two couples together. Right? Because they're coming into a union for a higher end. Just like a person entering a religious state comes to that, to that religious house to pursue a higher end of religious and evangelical perfection. So in that sense, in the sense that he's pursuing a higher end by the very work that he's doing, he merits an increase of sanctifying grace. So also the first couple in paradise, by their entering into marriage, by in pursuing a supernatural end, the procreation of the children of God, they already had an increase of sanctifying grace. So you can see already in paradise the magnificence of marriage. But we're still not talking about Christian sacrament yet. This is only because it flows from the fact that they were both in the state of sanctifying grace, because they were elevated to the supernatural order. Now, you can ask ourselves, how does, Christian, uh, how does the Christian sacrament of marriage compare to, to marriage in paradise? It seems on the face of it, because we beget children that are affected by original sin, and on the effect of it, on the, on the face of it, that it seems like marriage in paradise seems how a little bit more elevated than marriage today. But if you consider the question more closely, if you consider now how the supernatural order, how they are elevated to the supernatural order, you can see that Christian marriage is much more higher. Because the way that we enter into the supernatural order is not merely by some, by infusion of grace, but by baptism. And baptism impresses upon us a character. It's a character that deputes us for the worship of God, makes us a mystical body of Christ. We become members of Christ by baptism. Bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh, as St. Paul says. And so when, when two baptized adults enter into union, into marriage, for the procreation of children, they not only enter as two individuals, they enter as two members of the mystical body of Christ. And they, of that very nature of entering as two, mem two, two members of the mystical body of Christ, the very end is the extension of the mystical body. That becomes their elevated purpose. And so when their union is rightly contracted, they have no other end to look forward to but this, but the extension of Christ's mystical body on earth. See, because by baptism, the couple belongs to the mystical body of Christ. And so by their contracting together, they do not contract together just as two individuals, but as two members of the mystical body of Christ. Therefore, their end cannot be just merely procreation of children, but the extension of the mystical body of Christ. And so the Christian couple cannot dispose of their bodies as they wish. In fact, that's the whole argument of Ephesians, if you read St. Paul Ephesians, which was read on your marriage day. 
Their bodies are no longer their own bodies, but the flesh of Christ. So the husband must love his wife as Christ loved the church. That is the essential mystery of marriage. And so they cannot use their generative faculties in their own will, but only in the will of Christ and in the will of his church. For their bodies are no longer their own flesh, but the flesh of Christ. And so the union they have with the divine head through baptism right, carries over into the union of matrimony. Their union with Christ transfigures and consolidates their union with each other. And so therefore we can see that marriage, in the Christian marriage, is elevated in every point of view. It's not as it was in paradise. In paradise it was only supernatural in the sense they were both in the state of grace. And that grace was somehow tied to their nature to produce children in the state of grace. But here, matrimony is so elevated that by every reason it is above the natural state. So the, the very couple themselves are in a supernatural state by baptism. The reason of the couple themselves, they are in a state of, they are by baptism members of the mystical body. By reason of the supernatural end. Right? They're, they're there to increase the mystical body of Christ, to extend his kingdom upon earth. And by reason of the sublime intervention of God, the miracle at Cana. where God took a merely natural institution, as sublime as it was, and increased it by his, by his presence into a supernatural end, the extension of his own body. As these couples came together, he made it so that his own body would be perpetuated through them. So you can see this holiness, just by those three points, as greater and more excellent than, the, than marriage in paradise. In the same measure that the grace that we receive from Christ is so much more elevated than the supernatural state Adam and Eve possessed. And that the same union of God in the incarnation is so much more elevated than by the infusion of the Holy Ghost into souls. You see, by baptism we enter, so to speak, into the incarnation of Christ. We become part of his, part of his body. So marriage because of that sacred character, enters into that same union of the Incarnation. And so, when St. Paul speaks of marriage, he says, this is a great sacrament, but I speak in Christ and in the Church. That's Ephesians 5.32. And this statement that St. Paul says basically wraps up everything. It encloses everything about marriage that could be said. But as it is one statement, we have to unravel it quite a bit. He says, this is a great mystery in Greek. This is a great sacrament. Now this word sacrament in the original Greek is actually the word mysterion, which is where we get the word mystery. And he's speaking of this mystery, this great, this great mystery, or this great sacrament. He's speaking of that union between man and wife. And he says, and I mean in Christ and in the church. But I mean in Christ and in the church. 
And the Greek can actually can mean more than this. It seems, I mean pointing to Christ right? and to the church. And he means in, not only in the sense of being within, but also in as in pointing to. And so in the sense this marriage is said to be a great mystery, clearly depends upon how we understand this term. So the greatness of, of marriage flows from the greatness of this, the union of Christ and his church. Now, how can we understand this? What, how can we understand matrimony as being a mystery or a sacrament of Christ and his church? Well, we could take it in two ways. Could we say that matrimony is like a symbol or sign? A symbol or sign of Christ's union with his church. Well, if we were just going to take it in that way, the matrimony would not be much in itself. In that sense, matrimony would just be a sign of something else, a sign of another mystery. It would not be a mystery in itself. Right? It would be rather be a sacrament of mystery instead of a sacrament proper. So it is a symbol, but it was also a symbol of, of the union of Christ and his church, even to the pagan, even to the pagan marriage, even to the Old Testament. The Old Testament often speaks of, Christ, of God's union with his people in the, in the framework of marriage to show the intimacy of that union. So it is a symbol, true, but it's not just that. In fact, marriage before Christ is exactly that. It was a symbol, it was a prophetic symbol that God used to show the union of Christ with his church. But Christian marriage, on the other hand, is intrinsically, something intrinsically tied to that union. So I can put real here. It's something intrinsically tied to the union of Christ and his church. Because it is a real and intrinsic reference to the union of Christ and his church. It, oper it is representative, it is a symbol of the mystery of Christ and his church because that mystery of Christ and his church is actually operative right, and proves active in it. So the very duties of Christian marriage, St. Paul throughout the whole epistle of Ephesians, is, is proving the duties of Christian marriage by the very nature that Christ has with his church, by the very union Christ has with his church. The union that Christ has with his church is the ideal in the root of Christian marriage. And as baptism makes husband and wife members of his body, They become members of his flesh and bone of his bone, as St. Paul says. And so as members of the bride of Christ, they themselves are wedded to Christ. And hence the mystery between un the union between Christ and his church becomes operative in their own lives. And so they can only rightfully pursue the end of marriage insofar as they act in the spirit of Christ. That is, for the further extension of his kingdom upon earth, for the ex further extension of the mystical body. And so their attitude, their, their regulation in their own marriage, right, must be under the influence of the Holy Ghost and under the influence of Christ. It must be regulated by the same spirit that unites Christ with his church.
And so consequently, the right of disposing of their bodies belongs properly to Christ. And so they act only with that spirit. And so the right of disposing with each other right, are not patterned upon earthly couples, but upon the earthly paradise, but upon the paradise in heaven, right, where Christ is, is forever united with his church. And so this very union presupposes, this very union of matrimony in the sacrament presupposes the union with Christ, which comes in baptism, which is why the church says that marriage is a sacrament when two, the two couples are baptized. That's the fundament, that's how the foundation of the doctrine comes from. It's not that baptism is sort of like a magic wand that makes marriage a sacrament. It's rather the other way around. It's the baptism that roots one in the mystical body of Christ that then flows from that union with one has with Christ into the marriage and makes that marriage a sacrament. So you can see that by its very nature, the married couple, more than just by baptism, a married person, just by baptism, is obliged to worship God because he's deputed for that thing. But in matrimony, he's obliged not merely to worship God, but also to produce children that worship God, that worship the triune God. And that is why all the necessities, also all the precepts of the church flow from that. They flow from that. That's why your children have to be baptized as soon as possible. That is why they have to be educated in the Catholic Church. That's why all those, that's why all those obligations stem from, is from that. It's because your matrimony is not just a natural tie with another person. It's a tie with Christ. And thus we can see that Christian marriage towers above, is so much more elevated than marriage as it was in the very beginning, in the marriage in paradise. And there, by its very towering above, it is also more productive of grace in other persons. By that very, by that very fact that it's more supernatural and more elevated, shows you that it is, by its very nature, more prone or more inclined to produce grace. Right, because it is more inclined to transmit grace to others. See, in, in paradise, grace had this sort of precarious connection with nature, in the sense that if Adam and Eve ever fell from grace, they would no longer pass grace on to their children. But with Christian matrimony, it's no longer tied to nature. The grace is no longer tied in somehow to nature. What happens is that it's tied to Christ. The grace is tied to Christ, which can never be separated. That is why it produces more grace. So for Adam and Eve, grace was sort of tied to nature. That's kind of a loose way of putting it. In a sense that if they ever lost sanctifying grace, they would no longer be able to transmit it to their children. While in Christian matrimony, grace flows from the union with Christ. The union of Christ with his church. Which can never be dissolved. 
And that is why the matrimonial bond in Christian matrimony is so much more powerful, much more, so much binding, and so much more indissoluble before than before the institution by Christ. And so by this very matrimony, by this sacrament of matrimony, one becomes an organ of the mystical body. Becomes an organ of the mystical body that has a very high place because its very purpose is to produce more members of the mystical body. Now here we can see that in this union, procreation of children was, like I say again, that grace was sort of tied to nature, if I want to use that phrase, in the sense that Adam and Eve could only give their children grace insofar as they were in a state of grace. And so this, this precariousness of grace as being tied to a certain frail human being, this no longer exists in the state of Christian matrimony. There is no longer any frailty because children are no longer begotten in a family, but in a very virginal womb of the church. And see, God is the, and the God-man, as the source of all grace, is the source of this, is the source of this grace. The God-man is the source of the grace that the matrimony bond gives to the couple. And so from this, not only does the couple have sanctifying grace on the day of their wedding, but also they have the right, so to speak, the God-given right, for the, for the actual graces needed for their duty of state. And these actual graces are also so much more higher, in a sense that the before, the children produced by Adam and Eve, if they had any, in a state of original justice, those children would not be in a state of original sin. But the men and women that enter into Christian matrimony are still burdened with the, with the stains of original sin. And so this grace is so much more in proportion to the necessities that they have, especially the necessities of children who are begotten in the same state, who are under the, are under the affliction of original sin. And so by this very sacrament of matrimony, one is entitled to all the supernatural helps, to all the actual graces that they need for the fulfillment of the duty of state. And these graces not only come in proportion to one's efforts, but ipso facto, the very sacrament of matrimony is a carrier of grace to the couple. Because in their union, they expand and reproduce the union of Christ in his church. And thus it follows from the very nature of Christian matrimony that the husband and wife must love each other not with just a merely natural love, not with just a mere passionate love for each other, but with a supernatural love. Because as members of Christ, they are representative to each other of the mystical nuptials that Christ has with his church. And so they must love and honor each other, not merely as other human beings, but as other members of Christ, as children of God. And they must take the place of Christ in their matrimonial bond as the married couple is not just merely to their children, a mere father and mother, but they represent in a very real way Christ in that family. As so you can see, the supernatural and lofty vocation that Christian matrimony is. 
and it demands all the greater graces in proportion to be, uh, to be faithful to it. And you can see this is one of the most beautiful doctrines of the church, of matrimony, because nowhere else do you see God sanctifying and elevating a mere natural human relationship. And nowhere else do you see God intervening in the in affairs of man as you do see in matrimony. Because he not only elevates something that did before, but he makes it such an elevation that he ties it to his own union with the redemption. The very nature of matrimony is tied to the nature of the redemption. And so their very union is an expression and a continuation of the, of the mystical union that Christ has with his church. And so nowhere else does the mystical life of the church enter more into society. Nowhere else does the mystical life of the church enter into the daily affairs of human man, of humankind. And if you can see this is such a dignity of marriage, could you imagine what the, what the dignity of the consecrated life is? Where it's no longer the production of material souls to of rational souls to receive grace, but also the, the giving of that grace to other souls. And you can get somewhat of the idea of how much elevated more the consecrated life or the consecrated state must be.